Please join me in prayer as uh, we prepare for the sermon. Gracious and Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this evening in uh, so many different uh, moods, so many different places, uh, coming from so many different contexts, Lord. There are those of us who are thankful, eager, and joyful. Uh, there are those of us who are maybe worn out and tired and bitter, Lord. Um, and wherever we may be found this evening, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, by uh, the power that you promised to work through your Word, that you can show us Christ, show us our Savior, our need for Him, cut through all doubt and unbelief in our hearts, and may we uh, come to you with glad, joyful, and worshipful hearts. Please work in our hearts and our minds that we can see you, know you, and love you, and that by your Spirit we can be made more and more into the image of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight's uh, sermon text comes from Psalm 73. Uh, I'll give you guys a moment to open up. And the sermon title is God is Good. It's pulled from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken, and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Amen. 
So as I got to speak uh, with some of you before I got up here, uh, I mentioned that I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up as a Christian. And there's many beautiful things about coming to faith later on in life. Um, but there are also things that you think about, things you wonder, what would it be like if I had grown up in the church? And for me, one of the things I always think about is the role that the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the confessions that we confess, uh, what role they play in shaping us and making us who we are as we recite these things week in and week out, how they become a part of us in one way or another and how some of them have a strong impact on us and maybe other things are taken for granted. Uh, for example, perhaps you've heard uh, in churches where the pastor will say to the congregation, God is good, and the congregation will say all the time. And then he'll say all the time, and they'll say God is good. And I've always loved that. I love how it's almost like hello for people at different churches. It's so ingrained into the body of that church. Um, but I also wondered, what would it be like to grow up hearing that every single week? To hear every week, God is good all the time. And to maybe just take it at face value. Maybe not think all too much about it. Maybe even naively just confess it and take it as something that is uh, something that you partially understand and you just, it just is, of course. But imagine you grew up hearing that week in and week out. And then you go off into the real world. You go into a world where you're confronted with things like abuse, like anxiety, depression, death, injustice, racism, so many things that would seem to say otherwise. What kind of effect would that have on you? What kind of crisis could it potentially have upon you to have this untested confession that you've just taken for granted and you maybe start to question whether God is that good? Maybe you'd even begin to question whether God is good at all when you see this. And this is the main issue for the psalmist in this passage. He's asking, how can I confess that God is good when all I seem to experience and see around me is suffering, injustice, and the like? And so we're going to pick up that question with the psalmist and walk through this struggle. We're going to look at it under two main headings. We're going to look at how it seems and how it is. So starting with how it seems, you see, uh, the psalmist sets out his confession, what he perhaps heard growing up week in and week out in the synagogue, in the temple. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And it's almost like he holds it up as if, uh, as if it were on trial. It's like he holds this up and he says, This is the claim, and will it hold up underneath the evidence that I'm about to bring before it? And we have this underlying question, does God truly reward the righteous, and does he truly remain just towards the wicked? That's what's underlying this confession that he makes at the beginning. And immediately we see in verse 2 and those that follow that the claim begins to look doubtful based on the way that things look to him, and his faith is shaken. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Well, what does he see that creates such a crisis of faith? What, is the thing, what are the things that he notices that would make him be shaken to his core? Well, as it's uh, laid out in verses 3 through 12, to state it simply, what he sees is that, in his view, the wicked win. He sees that they flourish. In verse 3, it says that they prosper. In verse 4, they don't experience any pain until death. 
They go throughout life listfully, not experiencing any pain until they have to meet their maker at the end of their life. In verse 4, it also says that they are fat, which might not seem like a good thing in our health-conscious society, but back then it meant that you had money enough to have weight on your body. It was a sign of wealth and prosperity. It was something that people were envious of. And in verse 5 simply states that they aren't like the rest of us. They continue to sin and lead lives however they want. And no matter how far they seem to descend in their sin, from the outside, it looks like they're just shooting up into the highest reaches of what society and life can offer them. Not only do they flourish, but they're also prideful. He says in verse 6 that they're overcome with pride. In verse 7, that they're overcome with indulgence. In verse 8, that they're violent. You see, they no longer fear God because they don't have a need for him. And it can be easy for us to hear these descriptions and maybe think of something like the 80s movie Wall Street, right? You think of slick people, you think of Michael Douglas with his hair slicked back and has the cars, has everything he needs. And it's easy to think that those people don't need God. But I think that these attitudes and this way of thinking about God in our life hits a lot closer to home than we maybe care to admit. Of all things, I uh, came across a clip from a stand-up comedian this past week that I think encapsulates this beautifully. He was talking about, uh, he is a self-proclaimed agnostic. He's agnostic about his atheism. That's what he said. And he said that in his travels, he's noticed that it's far more prevalent to find atheists who are from the higher classes of society, especially Western individualistic society. Because you'd go to them and you'd offer them afterlife. You'd offer them religion. And they would say, can I really get that much better? It's, it's pretty great here. I'm just going to take my chances with what I have. I'm going to take my supplements and I don't need your God. And, um, you know, obviously he delivers it much more comedically. But it's funny because it has that tinge of truth to it. That people really do look around at what they have. Especially for us in America, we're blessed in so many ways. It can be easy for everybody, believer or unbeliever, to look around and say, can it really get that much better? And so the wicked are prideful as a result of this. But besides the flourish, besides the pride, the psalmist also says that they are attractive. In verse 10, therefore his people, meaning God's people, Israel, turn back to them and they find no fault in them. They see how good of a life that they have, and they start to think, I might want some of that myself. And they even begin to ask, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And if you pay attention to what's being said, these are the very same heart of the words of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're peddling the same lies of the serpent to God's people, and once again, God's people find it attractive find it charming. They look, they saw, and they wanted to take what they saw as it was attractive to the eye. And what's the result of this? What's the result of this sin, this pride, this luring of God's people? Well, verse 12 says, further ease and further gain. Justice doesn't seem to be present in this situation. And not only that, but their influence is extending over God's people. So not only is he seeing that the wicked seem to win, but he also sees that nice guys tend to finish last in the way that the world seems to work, in the way that it seems. He's asking himself, if the wicked only win, 
then why am I doing any of this? Why am I trying to be pure if it doesn't seem like the God is good to those who are pure in heart? He asks himself in verse 13, have I pursued this in vain? In verse 14, he likens his relationship to one where he only receives rebuke, where he only receives blows from God day in and day out. And he's wrestling deeply with this once great confession that surely the Lord is good to Israel and to the pure in heart. That confession that he maybe took for granted is now being tested and he's being shaken to his core. And with this wrestling, with this shaking, I think there are two clarifications that are really, really important for us right here. And uh, one goes to those who are maybe more prone towards self-righteousness and another towards those of us who are more prone to be downcast. To those of us who are more prone to being self-righteous, I think that would evidence itself in anger more than anything else. We maybe look at these words and we see he's angry, rightfully so. This is a righteous anger. He's trying to stand up for what God believes in, right? It's good that he's angry. Uh, but if we pay attention a little bit closer, we notice that the anger comes not necessarily from righteousness, but it perhaps comes from envy. We are envious of others who have things that we want. We are envious and angry when we don't get what we think we deserve. Consider the person who you think is underqualified and gets the job that you think you deserve. Consider the family that is having lots of kids while you are struggling with infertility or the loss of a child. Consider the people who seem to live in ease when all you seem to know is struggle. And consider how you think about God when he doesn't give you what you think you deserve. You see, the psalmist doesn't want to merely defeat the wicked on some righteous crusade, but he wants to be like the wicked. He's genuinely considering should I be pursuing this instead of purity? He's almost asking himself, if I can't beat them, should I join them? And to those of us who are downcast, to those who are perhaps doubtful and experience the shame that perhaps comes along with that doubt, we need to be honest about the doubt that we have when we, when we have it. When we come across it, we need to be honest about them and bring them to the Lord. We see in verse 15, now, the psalmist refrains from voicing his doubt. He says that if I were to say these things, I would betray the generation of your children. He didn't want to express these things before the assembly, before those who would hear those things and maybe be cast into despair as well. But even though he refrained, here we have a psalm, something that would have been sung in the temple. And what did God keep for us in scripture? That doubt. That doubt is there to instruct us that we are to bring these doubts to the Lord. That even though he tried to refrain, the Lord kept this doubt voiced in scripture for us. And it's important to recognize, um, this is a quote from a theologian about this very passage. He says, it's important to recognize from the beginning that doubt is not necessarily unbelief. It is something that all humans experience and it does not automatically mean the end of faith. This inclusion reminds us that it's sometimes even a good thing to show those of us who are maybe younger or newer to the faith what a faithful wrestling with our faith and our doubts can look like and what an encouragement it can be to those who are maybe wrestling themselves to see that people are bringing these things before the Lord. Doubt doesn't necessarily mean unbelief, but it has a root of faith in it. We know how things should be. We know what God has declared and we're expecting that to be so. And so we bring it before the Lord 
God invites us to bring our doubts to him and to wrestle. Because when he is left to himself, the psalmist nearly falls away from his faith. But we see that he takes these doubts. He takes everything that seems wrong and he brings them before God. And what does God do? God shows them how things really are. Which brings us to our second point, how it is. You see, the psalmist, he makes this movement into the sanctuary that allows him to have a Godward view of all of these things, all of these complaints, everything that's wrong. He is finally given insight that brings both perspective and hope. The first thing he sees is not that the wicked win, but that the wicked wither. It says in verse, 15, verse 18, rather, that the wicked are lifted high, but they are lifted high and set upon slippery ground. They are not in a safe place. It says that their ruin, in uh, verse 19, will be swift. I don't know if you're familiar with the Greek myth of Icarus, but for those of you who aren't familiar, Icarus crafted wings made out of wax, and he wanted to fly closer and closer to the sun. And those of you that have ever had a candle knows what happens when heat is applied to wax. The closer and closer he got to the sun, the more and more of those wings fell away until he didn't have any wings, and he plummeted down to the earth. Even though he soared to the greatest of heights, it was all folly. Or we can even think of the Tower of Babel, that they were trying to build up this tower to be like God, and that it was ultimately cast down. You see, they can think in that moment that they don't need God, that they are above God even, uh, but as soon as that prosperity is taken away, they realize exactly who they are before the face of God. But even so, it's important to remember that this ruin, that this uh, justice is not necessarily promised in this life. It's not promised the way that we think it should happen. Instead, it points ahead to the final judgment of God. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You see, God will ultimately be just. Even as we walk through this life, it looks like he's being anything but just. And it's a reminder that though we may have prosperity in this life, it will ultimately fail us if that's where we're placing our faith. If our faith is in anything other than Christ, if we put it in prosperity or riches or anything, all these good gifts that we even have, and this is true for believers and unbelievers. This is not a message simply to those who are unbelievers who we would maybe be prone to think are the wicked, because as soon as we consider the wicked as only them, we forget to see ourselves apart from Christ. We are all prone to putting our faith in the things that we can see, in the things that we think we have control over instead of Christ, especially to those of us who have been really, really blessed. But not only does he see this end, he doesn't see that the wicked wither, he sees that the righteous remain. On that last day, the righteous will remain, not because of a naive belief in their own merit, but because their end has already been determined in Christ. Ultimately, where they stand is because of Christ alone. The first thing that we need to be reminded of is that Christ is the only one who was truly pure in heart, and yet he was the one that suffered the greatest injustice imaginable. He had every right to expect prosperity. He had every right to say that this good God will be good to me because I am truly pure in heart. But what did he receive? He received the cross and he received it for us. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he rightly asked that this cup be taken away because 
there was nothing he had done to deserve that cup. But for the sake, for our sake, for the sake of the will of God, he drank that cup down to the very last dregs. And what happened is that he experienced the silence of God. He didn't say, surely the Lord is good to me. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he didn't just die. Thank God that he didn't just die. But he was raised again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in his resurrected glory. And he received into glory so that we could be received into that very same glory. You see, the psalmist says, he points forward to this hope in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Obviously, he is speaking far beyond what he even knows at this point. He is looking ahead to a Christ that maybe only looks foggy and far off, according to the scriptures. But we see the fullness of what he's pointing to now. That Christ has gone ahead into glory for us. That our security, our hope of eternal glory is at the right hand of God. We need only to look to Christ and see that he is there for us. And it shows that any claim to prosperity based on our own righteousness is foolish and it's naive because the message is not stay pure and you'll get your reward. The message is that we will surely receive our reward because we have been made pure by the blood of Christ and have been adopted into his family. And finally, Christ's work promises that our sufferings will one day fade and give way to glory, just as wicked prosperity will fade and give way to justice. The wicked will not ultimately win. The righteous will not ultimately suffer. It is a hope that is cast into the future, but it's a hope that's present to us now, as long as Christ is seated next to our God. But you might be asking yourselves, this is beautiful, this is good, this is rich theology that points us to the hope that we have before us, but how does this help us now? We say all these things, we have this hope, but as I'm walking through it, it's kind of hard to cling to these promises in the midst of it, right? Well, I think how it helps us now is that first and foremost, it reminds us of the value of God's presence. The psalmist isn't relieved just because he discerns the end of the wicked. He is relieved because he sees God in the midst of wickedness. He looks around and everything that can give him trouble fades away because he sees God. He knows that God is near. And we need to be reminded that we are united to God as individuals and as this body. We are all united to God in Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. We read in Romans 8, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Christ Jesus who said in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us now and will continue to be so. And so God's presence is the anecdote. It's the solution to our doubt and our distress. Because our doubt is a cry that acknowledges God's promises. It's that root of faith that says, Lord, you have promised us to be so. And where are you? We can look to Christ and know that he's near. And that's what keeps us from despair 
So it keeps us from distress. Even now, we know that as we worship, as we gather together, God has promised to work through his word, to work through us gathering together in worship, that he is here with us even now. Every time we worship, it's a vital way that we declare and trust the promise of God's presence. We gather knowing that he is with us in the midst of the suffering. Second, it helps us now because it reminds us that the Christian life follows the path not of glory, but of the cross. Suffering is to be expected by Christians in this life. Look at every single word that Paul wrote, if you need a proof text. And this doesn't mean that God is far, though. It shows that we are called to Christ-likeness by moving towards the Lord in the midst of suffering. Christ didn't receive relief from his suffering, and he didn't receive relief so that we could have spiritual relief in the midst of our own suffering. Christ, the only one who could truly claim relief from suffering, chose to forego it so that we could have it by the power of his spirit, that we are united to him now, and he brings relief and comfort. And finally, it helps us now because it allows us to be merciful towards sinners towards those who we are prone to think are too unlike us, to those of us that we think are perhaps lost causes. Knowing the ultimate end of the wicked is not a cause for boasting. It's a cause for compassion and for grace. We should be struck by the fact that we are no better than anybody else apart from Christ. Verses 20 and 20, sorry, 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The realization that we are no different should move us to see the slippery places that people are in and to move towards them with love and compassion, to share the gospel with them and to show them Christ. Because the moment that we don't see ourselves in others is the moment that we have forgotten the gospel. The wicked will perish and we should not revel in that fact. We should desire that everybody should see Christ and turn from their sin and towards him. At the end of the day, this passage gives us insight beyond the things that we see each and every day. This doesn't make them easier, but it gives us perspective. It gives us insight and hope. We are called to suffer in this life. The world will often look unfair to us, but nevertheless, we know that God's presence is greater than the world's treasure. Look at verse 25 with me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Reminds us that Christ died for us to experience that presence, and nothing can take that away from us. Verse 22. um, No, sorry, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Continually with you because he is continually with us. Therefore, we can have hope, comfort, and faith amidst affliction. We can come through the other side of doubt and even despair with not a naive confession, not something we take for granted, but with a confession that is tried, true, and tested. That's come through the other side of doubt and has won by the power of the Spirit. And come through and have a confession that says, Surely the Lord is good to his people, to those whom he has made pure by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, you have truly given us everything in Christ. We thank you for your mercy, 
your goodness, that though we turned against you, though we were actively rebelling against you, you showed your love for us, that while we were still sinners, you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. You would have been perfectly just to leave us in those slippery places and to let us fall. But you set us on solid ground. You sent your Son to live a perfect life on our behalf and to die for our sins. And Lord, I pray that that may animate our lives, that it may give us boldness to share the gospel with others. Help us to have the compassion to see others with the same mercy, the same eyes of mercy that you've looked upon us with. Lord, thank you for not being content to leave us in our mess, but to pursue us through your Son. As we go out into our weeks, Lord, please put this message upon our hearts and our minds. May we love you. May we have confidence amidst affliction and suffering and doubt. But may we come before you in faith. May we wrestle before you, never doubting in a way that seeks to run from you, but rather in a way that runs to you. And may we pursue others with the same love that you've pursued us with. I pray in this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.